Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is episode number 17 in our series of 2019, and today's date is Friday, May the 24th. First, I talked to Chris Balash, CEO and co-founder of Proveneer, an ag tech company which has built Australia's first vertically integrated, commercially licensed mobile abattoir to process livestock at the point of production, on the farm, where they were raised. And then I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about Australia's wages, and labour force figures. But for now, let's talk to Chris Balash. Chris Balash, tell us about Proveneer's new ag tech invention of mobile abattoirs. It's exactly that, Leon. Um, we've been able to, with the use of um, a lot of technology, put a static abattoir in the back of a semi-trailer and what that enables us to do is produce a product that is of premium quality and has uh, high welfare attributes to it as well. So we go to the farm, the animal doesn't have to be transported, hence the quality aspect and the fact that they don't have to go through the stress of transportation therein lies the animal welfare aspect. I, I know the abattoir industry quite, I know the <laughs> meat industry quite well having worked for the meat industry when I was 16 so I know abattoirs have closed down everywhere. 
and Correct. now animals are being transported over long distances, that can't be good for them. No, there's there's been a lot of study on how to minimise the impact of stress on the animal over that transportation process. Um, and there has been a um, significant consolidation in the industry uh, of abattoirs becoming larger and they're centralised to areas close to capital cities. So obviously the animals are raised in the rural areas and that means that they have to be transported further. So when we look at the science side of things, the animal has a certain amount of glucogen reserves which gets consumed through any stressful process. The longer that process is, the more glucogen gets consumed and at the point of um, processing, it means that the animal's um, meat tenderness is compromised. Uh, so you work really hard to get them in top shape and then it's gone. That's exactly right. And that's one of the great frustrations I, I myself am a, am a farmer, um, is that you get these animals into top condition, you spend um, years growing them and, and keeping them in um, optimal conditions and then all the farmers are forced to put them on the back of a truck to get them to a sale yard or to an abattoir from there. So we're really failing the animal and the meat quality in the final few hours and days of the animal's life. Well, that's, that would be quite difficult for the farmer, wouldn't it? It's what's motivated me to um, produce Australia's first mobile abattoir. Um, myself and our five founders are all very focused around the animal welfare aspects. We choose to eat meat, but we want to do it in the best way possible. So tell us about the technology. So the unit itself um, is a very large truck, and it's um, people have made comments that it's a bit like a transformer. So whilst it looks like a, a truck as it goes down the road, when it's actually on farm, uh, the roof raises, a ramp comes out the side, and it turns into a mobile abattoir. So um, from there we have the um, knocking box, we have hoist, we have rail systems, there's... Um, evisceration and halving stations as well, same as any abattoir, but the trick has been to be able to get all of those attributes in quite a confined space. How did you do that? So the unit itself has been designed from the ground up, so um, it's completely bespoke made, um, and it had to meet all the requirements of the Australian standard, which dictates um, how abattoirs are to be constructed and operated. So we had to meet those regulatory requirements and, of course, it being a truck, it has to meet the National Heavy Vehicle Road Regulations, which have just been revised in the last 18 months, which added an extra level of uh, complexity. So we have to meet a lot of regulations. So the design process was iterative, um, meaning that we, had, we, we took a step forward, look at how that actually um, works, then we take the next step forward and see how that works. So it was a sort of... Uh, Meccano set process. And how long did that take? From the concept, so the business has been operating for two years. Um, we went through an ag tech uh, startup incubator, which really got um, those five uh, novice enthusiastic founders and transformed them into a team that actually could bring this to reality. Um, and then we raised um, just over a million dollars through an equity sell of the company. And then we um, got an engineering company to partner with us and they built the design based on um, our requirements. So what other ag tech innovations have we got out of Provenant? 
So we also have a digital provenance platform. So that's um, a nice <laughs> term. So part of the um, emerging market with branded meat is consumers want to know where this comes from. And they don't want to just read a, a, a fictional farm on the, on the label. They actually really want to know which farmer does it come from. How do they look after their animals? What food do they feed them? How do they cope in uh, drought times? What land management um, techniques that they have? So what we've um, been able to do through the power of digital um, QR codes is we have a way that the consumer can actually connect to the farms that we're going to. So they can, through the QR code on their phone, see exactly which farm it came from. Uh, we also provide them with cooking recipes and, and cooking tips um, so that they can really know that tonight they're eating Angus and next week they might be eating Hereford, week after Shorthorn. Um, and it's something we're really excited about on that side of things is that we want to develop the tawar of beef. That's that's quite extraordinary. That's quite extraordinary. Now, now so you are operating where? So the uh, launch area that we're going to operate is in New South Wales, the Riverina area, stretching through from Echuca, Tokemore, up to Holbrook. Uh, it really is a... That's good cattle country. It's fabulous cattle country from there. And what it also does is, um, you know, up around Holbrook, starting to get into the uh, divide there. That's uh, good country over summer. And along the, the flats of the Murray, that's good country over winter. So that balances out um, our supply chain. And um, from the regulatory point of view, the legislation is very clear in New South Wales that uh, mobile abattoirs can operate. So that gives us a, a clear way through for licensure. Do you see yourselves expanding into other parts of Australia? Absol Queensland could Absolute. use you very badly, for example. Absolutely, yeah. So we've had a lot of interest from farmers across this nation. For, for them, it's a no-brainer. You know, why would I put cattle on the back of a truck if I could actually have the abattoir come to my farm? Um, so there's, there's key areas that we want to expand into. Um, that'll be um, south-east Queensland, central Queensland, um, east and west Victoria, north... Uh, Tasmania and southwest uh, Western Australia, all areas that um, have got the right topography, grass, and uh, quality of cattle that meets our business plan. Um, so, in six uh, months or so, we're planning to go with a Series A, um, go back to market, raise uh, further capital, and build five units from there. And uh, we really want to see this to become a viable alternative. Um, for farmers to use and for consumers to, to have high welfare meat. This is quite extraordinary, but uh, at the same time, there are state regulations on this, aren't there? Yeah, so each state, so the way that it works is that there's an Australian standard 4696 for the production of meat for human consumption. Um, each of the states have subscribed to that Australian standard and have individual state-based um, either acts or legislation around that. So our licence process is a state-by-state -state basis. Uh, here in Victoria, the government currently has legislation in the parliament as we speak looking to um, remove any ambiguity in the Victorian Meat Act to um, endorse and empower um, mobile abattoirs. So, you know, the government's on board. They can see this is a fantastic way of um, getting money back to farmers and allowing them to uh, have branded meat and, and get the um, financial rewards from that. 
Well, considerably. I mean, I could see this uh, being of appeal to farmers around the world. I mean, hmm? do you see yourself expanding further? Uh, we, we just had a very interesting chat um, about a company who's excited about the tech in Southeast Asia. Um, it's, it's a different market over there. Um, that's about actually providing high quality um, protein in rural areas. So it, it's not a um, premium uh, market play as it is in Australia here um, because of the food safety standards that we have here are a lot higher. Um, and in Asia, they can see it actually um, solving a lot of um, their protein issues for rural communities. So they, they produce the cattle, but they can't consume it because there's no processing available in those areas. Right, right. But uh, conceivably, you could see yourself expanding into Asia. Oh, as absolutely. Well. Yeah, so um, we, we've networked um, over into Europe. Um, there's a company that's been operating a mobile slaughter unit for um, four years in Sweden. Um, they're good friends of ours. We, we've been communicating. They've been helping guide us and mentor us over the last two years. So I think this is a, a global move that is going to occur. Well, Chris, it'll be fascinating to watch. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Leon. Thank you. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering. Uh, Callum Pickering, the wages growth figures came in low again at 0.5%. The market was expecting 0.6%, and uh, wages growth is sitting at 2.3%. That's uh, There's no pickup at all. Yeah, that's right. It was a somewhat disappointing wage outcome. Um, a lot of economists and market participants were hoping for a little bit of a, a stronger outcome for uh, the March quarter, perhaps a, a 0.6 um, quarterly result. That certainly wasn't the case, um, leaving wage growth at just 2.3% um, over the year, which again was unchanged from the December quarter and suggests that um, the gradual pickup in wage growth that so many are, are hoping for um, isn't quite uh, happening as, as quickly as um, they'd hoped. And uh, wage growth is below its decade average in uh just about every industry, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. Um, every industry except for healthcare and social assistance. Um, so there really is no area of the economy where we could say that wage growth is is strong or even even reasonable. Um, most sectors are, are well below um, what their decade average is. And, of course, that decade average itself is quite low because wage growth over the past five years has been very weak. Um, so even getting back to that decade average isn't particularly impressive given where wages were, um, you know, 10 years ago. And, and I suppose the uh, healthcare and social assistance, would uh, wages would go, be going up because of the strong demand for services because of the ageing population. Would that be right? Yeah, that's right. Um, healthcare and social assistance has been one of our strongest um, industries from an employment standpoint, um, and that's flowing through to, to wages. There's huge demand for doctors and nurses and carers, um, largely due to Australia's ageing population, which um, continues to support employment in that, that sector. Uh, it's a trend that's likely to continue. It certainly wouldn't surprise me if healthcare and social assistance is Australia's um, strongest driver of employment over the next, say, five years. Um, and that should support wage growth as well. I would certainly expect um, wage growth in that sector to remain above its decade average um, over the next few years. Nonetheless, it's, uh, it still seems to be below 2% in uh, the key sectors like uh, construction and retail trade. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's perhaps no surprise in the retail sector, which, as we know, has come under um, intense pressure 
um, over the past few years, particularly from online competition such as Amazon. Um, it might be a, a little bit more of a surprise for the construction sector, which has been a reasonably strong sector over the past few years with all the, the residential builds in the likes of um, Sydney, Melbourne and and Brisbane. But it hasn't flown through to, to wage growth. And given that residential construction is set to decline over the next couple of years, it does suggest that wage growth in that sector could actually um, get a little bit worse um, in the near term. So, I mean, but uh, real wages, didn't they, they rose over about 0.9% over the past year, haven't they? Yeah, they have. Um, unfortunately, it was driven by low inflation rather than stronger wage growth. Um, obviously, it's better to have real wage growth uh, higher than lower, but ultimately, the increase is unlikely to be sustainable because it is being driven by lower inflation rather than higher wages. And so you'd expect... Um, that sort of spike to diminish in the coming quarters as sort of inflation returns to more normal levels and and wage growth does as well. Okay, now now the uh, key for higher wage growth, as we've talked all all, all the time, is about uh, the ongoing decline in labour market slack. Uh, well, unfortunately, um, labour market slack actually increased um, in the recent set of labour force figures, which is a, a bit of a blow to the idea of, of higher wage growth. The unemployment rate, uh, of course, picked up to 5.2%. That's the highest since August. And the underutilisation rate, the, the broadest measure of unemployment we have, increased to 13.7%, and it hasn't been that high since July. Um, if those numbers hold over the next couple of months, um, that could very well mean that wage growth could actually ease a little bit over the remainder of the year. So we could go from a 2.3% annual rate down to a 2.2 or even a 2.1%. Um, which is definitely not what I think anyone was really expecting um, from the the economy, even as recently as a couple of months ago. Now, uh, uh, underutilisation rate would have to ease towards 12%, wouldn't it, before wage growth uh, or 3% is higher? Yeah, the, the long-term um, relationship between wage growth and the underutilisation rate does suggest that the underutilisation rate would have to ease to around 12% in order to facilitate wage growth of, of 3%. As I said, it's currently at 13.7%, so it's a long way away from that 12% level that we're looking for, and that ultimately suggests that wage growth is going to remain uh, quite weak for at least the next couple of years. Now, uh, the unemployment rate actually went up to 5.2%. Uh, what was driving that? That was, it was an interesting one because employment growth in April was actually reasonably strong, up 28,400 people and, and usually that would be enough to either leave the unemployment rate unchanged or even um, cause it to decline a little bit. That wasn't the case in April and that's because there was actually a, a large increase in the number of people who were unemployed. What essentially happened was the participation rate in the Australian labour force increased to its highest level in history um, and that helped to, to push up the unemployment rate um, in April. It's going to be an interesting couple of months going forward because it'll be interesting to see where that participation rate holds at that high level. And if it does, that suggests that um, the unemployment rate could um, drift higher again. Um, if we do see the participation rate normalise, if this was just a, a one-off sort of monthly outcome, 
um, then the unemployment rate could, of course, um, perhaps drift a little bit lower back down to the 5.1% that it had been for the, the past few months. I mean, uh, the big concern about the labour market is that the employment growth seems to be quite narrow. I mean, it seems to be driven by two states, New South Wales and Victoria, because they have a much stronger labour market than anywhere else. And if uh, conditions slow down in New South Wales and Victoria, perhaps due to housing, then the overall labour market picture would deteriorate as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. One of the big concerns I have about Australia's labour market at the moment is how narrow uh, employment growth has been. If we look at the state level, we can see that there's a real two-speed labour market in Australia. We have the unemployment rate at 4.3% in New South Wales, 4.8% in Victoria. Uh, but then you look at Queensland, Western Australia and South Australia, they're all up at 6%. Um, so they've got a labour market that really isn't performing very well at all. And then you move on to Tasmania, where the unemployment rate's up at 6.7%. So it's very narrowly based. And that does suggest that if Anything happens to, to growth in New South Wales and Victoria, housing being an obvious example of something that could cause employment growth to slow, then it's going to be very difficult for the national picture to hold steady because these other smaller states are simply not going to be able to um, increase their employment to, to match the potential decline in, in the likes of uh, New South Wales and Victoria. Which means that that could see the unemployment rate increase beyond 5.2%. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I think on the balance of probabilities, it does seem likely that the unemployment rate will drift up over the next six to 12 months. Um, how high it's likely to go is a little bit unclear at this stage, but certainly a, a 5.3, maybe a 5.4% is more likely than getting below 5% at this point. And I think that's likely to be factored into the thinking of the, the Reserve Bank of Australia at the moment. So which way do you expect the Reserve Bank to go? I mean, all you economists saying the Reserve Bank will cut rates twice this year. Yeah, that's what the market expects. That's what most economists expect. And I think that's a reasonable position to take. Um, I think they, they could have cut in May. I think most of the pieces were there to justify a cut um, a couple of weeks ago. Obviously, they didn't do that. But the market appears... Uh, more certain than not, that they're going to, to cut when they meet in June. Um, and that's largely been driven by this increase in the unemployment rate. The Reserve Bank was quite clear um, in their statement um, earlier this month when they said that they needed to see a reduction in labour market slack in order for inflation to return to target. And obviously that didn't happen with, in April with both the unemployment rate and the underutilisation rate uh, ticking upwards. So... Uh... Uh, we would expect the Reserve Bank then to uh, cut in June and possibly when after that? Yeah, so a cut in June is, is likely June or July. Um, I would be surprised if they waited any longer than that. I think So if they, if they go in June, a cut in August is also likely. If they wait till July, then I think um, a September or October cut is, is more likely. So I think they'll wait at least a couple of months between cuts. Um, it'll just depend on whether June or July is the, the first cut. And that will take our interest rates down to 1%, which would be an all-time low. Uh, that, that's right. Um, and it's, it's not clear how much lower we can go um, than that, which will be another interesting thing. So uh, if inflation doesn't begin to, to turn around with a 1% interest rate, um, it'll be interesting to see how willing the Reserve Bank is to cut further or whether they'll begin to um, consider some alternative monetary policy arrangements such as... Uh, quantitative easing, which of course was, uh, you, which had widespread use in the likes of the, uh, the US, Europe and Japan. 
Well, that'll be fascinating to watch. And uh, Callum Pickering, thank you very much for your time. And thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Ford Motor Company will cut roughly 10% of its global salaried staff by August as part of a company-wide redesign. The move will eliminate 7,000 white-collar jobs and save the US auto giant about $600 million annually. We will continue to work collaboratively and respectively with our teams and other partners to ensure our designs are effective and fit and that our employees are treated fairly and with respect, the company said in a memo to employees obtained by the Detroit News. Ford is also looking to restructure its ranks globally, including in Europe, China and South America. The 7,000 job cuts include salaried employees who took buyouts within the past year, as well as jobs that were never filled and later eliminated. About 20% of the positions were senior-level management roles. Ford is not alone. General Motors has laid off roughly 4,500 workers since early 2017. In March, GM shut down production in Lordstown, Ohio, an area where manufacturing jobs have declined in recent years. And further escalation in the year-long trade war between Washington and Beijing would hammer away at growth at a time when the global economy is already set to slow, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development warned on Tuesday. The Paris-based think tank said in a biannual report that broader trade barriers between the largest economies would further slow trade flows and damage sentiment. The US and China have together levied steep tariffs on roughly US $360 billion worth of each other's products. If trade relations continue to deteriorate, the OECD forecasts that global gross domestic product would fall by as much as 0.7%, or roughly US $600 billion by 2021. Bloomberg Economics has made similar estimates. Further uncertainty about trade policies and a growing concern about that new restrictions would might be applied on a much wider range of items affecting many economies is likely to check business investment plans around the world, the report said. By increasing investment risk premium in financial markets and the cost of capital for companies, the OECD said greater uncertainty could be particularly costly in advanced economies. President Donald Trump has threatened to extend duties to all remaining Chinese imports to the US, which are valued at US $300 billion. Tensions between the US and China escalated further last week after the Trump administration banned telecommunications gear from foreign adversaries in a move seen as targeting certain Chinese companies. This all comes at a time when the world economy is expected to cool. The OECD estimates that world global gross domestic product growth will slow to 3.2% this year down from 3.5% in 2018 and 3.8% in 2017. And British celebrity chef Jamie Oliver's restaurant chain said it was entering administration, threatening jobs at the firm's 25 sites in the United Kingdom. Oliver, 43, who became a well-known figure in Britain and beyond for his popular TV shows, founded his Jamie's Italian brand of high street restaurants in 2008. His restaurant group also includes Barbacoa, a steakhouse, and Jamie Oliver's diner. The insolvency will leave 1,000 people out of work and reignited worries about local retail and food outlets in Britain, which are struggling to attract customers, much like downtowns in the United States. The Jamie Oliver Group said it had appointed Will Wright and Mark Orton of KPMG. Oliver, who was discovered by the BBC while working as a chef in London's River Cafe, gained widespread fame for his Naked Chef show, which is broadcast in dozens of countries. Oliver's restaurant chain is the latest victim of a brutal trading environment on Britain's high streets. 
Jamie's Italian restaurants in Australia went into administration last year, with the closure of one site in the capital, Canberra. KPMG, which will oversee the process, said all but three of the group's 25 eateries will close. Jamie's Italian was launched in 2008, with the intention of positively disrupting mid-market dining, with higher quality ingredients, animal welfare standards, better service and good value. But the launch came just as local businesses throughout the UK were squeezed by the onset of the 2008 financial crisis. Rising food prices, increasing rents and competition took a toll. The company had been in trouble for at least two years, despite Oliver's global fame on the back of his cookbooks and television shows. Last year, it shuttered 12 of its 37 sites in Britain, while five branches of the Australian arm of Jamie's Italian were sold off and another put into administration. Will Wright, a partner at KPMG and joint administrator, said that the directors at Jamie Oliver's restaurant group had worked hard to stabilise the business, but costs were rising and consumer confidence was brittle. He said the priority now is to support those that have been made redundant. Simon Midlovsky, a partner at Yorkshire law firm Gordon's, and an expert on the hospitality industry, said Jamie's is the latest brand that has failed to keep pace in a rapidly changing sector where a business needs to keep evolving. And the Reserve Bank of Australia says a softening in the jobs market will force it to cut interest rates just days after official figures showed unemployment starting to increase. The minutes of the RBA's May meeting showed there was a serious debate among members about whether to cut the official cash rate less than a fortnight out from Saturday's federal election. The cash rate has been on hold at 1.5% since August 2016, but markets put the chance of a cut at more than 66% because of growing concerns about low inflation and the strength of the jobs market. The minutes of the meeting, which was held before official figures showed a lift in the national unemployment rate to 5.2%, show RBA members alert to the problems of very low inflation that has so far failed to lift despite ongoing jobs creation. As in the previous meeting, Members discussed the scenario where inflation did not move any higher and unemployment trended up, recognising that in those circumstances, a decrease in the cash rate would likely be appropriate, the minutes showed. And the Reserve Bank Governor has given the strongest indication yet that interest rates will be cut in June. In his speech on the economic outlook and monetary policy, RBA Governor Philip Lowe was upfront about the decision facing the board in June. At our meeting in two weeks' time, we will consider the case for lower interest rates, he said. This is as clear a signal as the RBA ever delivers. But in a message to the newly elected Morrison government, Dr Lowe also warned that cutting interest rates was not enough to boost the economy. With the federal government now having a strong mandate for tax cuts, Dr Lowe called for additional spending on infrastructure and structural policies that support expanding, investing and employing people. And the six-month annualised growth rate in the Westpac Melbourne Institute Leading Index, which indicates the likely pace of economic activity relative to trend three to nine months into the future, declined from minus 0.13% in March to minus 0.47% in April. And spending across the Australian economy remained firm ahead of the federal election, according to patterns observed by the Commonwealth Bank, Australia's largest retail bank. Sales were particularly strong at amusement and entertainment businesses and accommodation providers, likely reflecting the timing of the Easter and Anzac Day holidays. Sales at clothing stores went backwards, possibly due to warm weather across many parts of the country. The Commonwealth Bank's spending measure slowed sharply in the second half of last year, mirroring official household consumption data released by the ABS. The recovery in early 2019 suggests household spending may have firmed in the March quarter. Its business sales indicator 
a measure on economy-wide electronic spending through the bank's payment platforms, grew by 0.5% in April in trend terms, leaving total spending up 5.3% from 12 months earlier. The April increase was marginally below the 0.6% trend growth seen in both February and March, but remained above average levels. And APRA, Australia's banking regulator, has signalled it may relax serviceability assessments for new residential mortgage loan applications, potentially allowing home buyers to borrow more to fund the purchase of their property. The regulator has proposed removing the minimum 7% floor rate that all new mortgage applications are obsessed by. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison has been told it is very unlikely he can convene Parliament before June 30 in a danger sign for his ability to legislate income tax cuts for the millions of workers due to take effect on the 1st of July. The delay has forced the government to look at retrospective action to ensure 10 million workers receive a tax offset in their tax returns worth up to $1,080 a year and promised in the April 2nd budget. One option is to pay a supplementary offset to workers after the law is changed in the new financial year to account for the tax relief promised to them for this financial year. Mr Morrison said voters wanted their politicians to go back to work after Saturday's election, but cautioned on Monday night that it would be difficult to convene the parliament next month. There's a lot of work to do and we're getting about it straight away, Mr Morrison told Sky News. We hope to convene the parliament again as soon as we can. We obviously have to wait for the writs to be returned and there's a formal process for that. At the moment, that's not looking until very late in the back end of June. So that really does make very narrow that opportunity to do it before the 30th of June. No election promise was as important to the coalition as its pledge to cut personal income taxes by $158 billion over the decade ahead, on top of a cut worth $144 billion announced in last year's budget. A key measure was an offset that would be paid to taxpayers when they lodge their tax returns for the financial year ending on June 30, with the cash flowing to 10 million workers. Some of the tax relief was legislated in 2018 and will deliver an offset worth $530 a year. The coalition went to the May 18 election with a plan to increase the offset by $550 as soon as it returned to power if it won the election. But Mr Morrison chose an election date that made his tax promise difficult to deliver. The issue of the writs for the election named June 28 as he date for the return of the writs, raising doubt over whether Parliament could sit in time to legislate the higher tax relief from the 1st of July. And pay TV provider Foxtel is locked in some tough negotiations as it seeks to cut costs while simultaneously securing more broadcast rights. Foxtel, which is battling falling revenue as it faces increased competition from a slew of online streaming services, has entered tough contract conversations with BBC Discovery and NBC Universal. Foxtel needs to build its catch-up library ahead of the launch of a new user interface in July and its planned drama and entertainment streaming service. And Inside Tech Pivot says its flagship ammonia plant in the United States has resumed operations while the struggling Queensland fertiliser plant remains in danger of closure as the company reported a better-than-expected half-year profit. Inside Tech's first half was marred by bad weather and mechanical outages at important operations, but the results published on Monday morning were still better than analysts had expected in terms of revenue, earnings before interest tax and underlying earnings. The $41.9 million underlying profit was well below the $147.1 million for the same period in 2018, but better than the $33.35 million expected by analysts surveyed by Bloomberg. And Blue Sky Alternative Investments has fallen into receivership and has been suspended from trading on the Australian share market. Blue Sky's market value has plummeted from $1.2 billion to $14 million. ASIC 
investigated the company for potential breaches of continuous disclosure obligations. Three major law firms are trying to launch class actions against Blue Sky. The Brisbane-based fund manager, which manages $2.8 billion in investments, appointed Pilot Partners as its voluntary administrators on Monday. It came after the former market darling breached a $50 million funding deal with US hedge fund Oak Tree Capital Management, which then led Oak Tree appointing Quartermantha as Blue Sky's receivers. At its peak, Blue Sky was worth almost $1.2 billion, when its share price was $14.54 in late December 2008-17. But its market value plummeted to just $14 million within one and a half years, with its shares last trading at 18 cents. Linus Corporation has bowed to pressure from Malaysian authorities and abandoned plans to continue accumulating low-level radioactive waste at its $1 billion Kuantan Rare Earths processing hub. The Rare Earths producer instead will look to build an upstream processing plant close to its Mount World mine in Western Australia to remove radioactivity before sending the product to Kuantan as part of a $500 million capital works program that includes increases in downstream processing capacity. And Seven West Media has blamed a soft advertising market and uncertainty surrounding the federal election for a lower-than-expected profit. On Tuesday morning, Seven warned it now expected earnings before interest and tax in the 2018-19 financial year will fall to between $210 million and $220 million, from last year's result of $235.6 million. It had previously forecast EBIT growth to come in between 0% and 5%. And the nation's second-largest private hospitals operator has fallen into private equity hands once again after shareholders overwhelmingly backed the $4.4 billion takeover by Canada's asset management Brookfield Capital Partners. It was a battle of the books, with rival bidder BGH Group locking up HealthScope's biggest shareholder, Australian Super, to its competing offer, leaving shareholders unhappy. But shareholders finally voted in favour of the $2.465 per share cash offered by Brookfield, which was led by Len Chersky, head of its private equity group in Australia. And AMP Financial Planning has admitted its clients were not provided with appropriate advice on insurance policies, nor did it act in their best interests. The company will be taken to court by the Australian Securities Investments Commission from June 19 to 21. ASIC is seeking civil penalties against AMP, and will also ask the federal court to make a compliance plan order. AMP has made these admissions of wrongdoing prior to a contested liability hearing to be held in June, which would have lasted two weeks, ASIC Deputy Chair Daniel Crennan QC said. And BHP has raised its expectations for electric vehicle sales and market penetration. In a blog published on Tuesday by BHP's Market Analysis and Economics Vice President Hugh Mackay, the miner upgraded its expectations for the minimum adoption of electric vehicles in coming decades. BHP now believes electric vehicles will comprise at least 7% of the world's light vehicle fleet in 2035, up from a minimum of 5%. The miner says electric vehicle sales in 2035 will be at least 16%, up from 10%. And BHP says it has no appetite for new investments in thermal coal, regardless of how lucrative those investments may be, but has also signalled it is unlikely to invest in commodities like lithium and cobalt. The hardening of BHP's attitude toward the type of coal used for power generation was revealed in a slide pack published ahead of a strategy briefing by Chief Financial Officer Peter Beaven. The presentation declares that the decarbonisation of the energy sector will see thermal coal phased out potentially sooner than expected. BHP then added that it had no appetite for growth in energy coal, regardless of asset attractiveness. And that's it for this week. And next week I have a terrific interview with Adam O'Neill, Chief Executive of YSoft, 
explaining how companies need to change their print services to support the rising trend in the number of mobile employees. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson, looking at the economic challenges for the newly elected Morrison government. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.